Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which will be our text today. We're going to start off just by reading the text, and then we'll ask God's help. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Lord, bring light upon your word today. Make the words that you caused to be penned by Paul so many years ago. Make they live in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would engender faith within us and that the gospel would become the most precious thing on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine a party situation. There's a large house filled with people. They're milling around. They're eating hors d'oeuvres. They're laughing and talking. But a piano player has been invited to come and provide entertainment for the party. And so in order to get everyone's attention, he starts banging away with these loud chords. And people take notice. They, okay, what's going on here? And they stop and they start listening and they stop talking. And then all of a sudden he goes into this theme of classical music. Beautiful, sweet song. And then he may depart from that theme and play a different aspect of the song, but then he'll return back to this theme and play it again. And then he'll go off over here and play this portion, but then he comes back to the theme and plays it again. That's what Paul's doing in Romans. In the first 15 verses, he's banging away on the chords to get everyone's attention. He's introducing himself. He's talking about who Christ is. He's explaining what the gospel's all about. He's telling them that he's wanted to come to them for a long time, and he's been prevented Thus far, he's saying he wants to come so he can give them a spiritual gift. He says he feels obligated to preach the gospel to everybody. But then when we come to verses 16 and 17, he's got their attention, and now he introduces the theme of the entire book of Romans. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. And it's what he talks about here in verses 16 and 17. Now he's going to illustrate and apply and unpack this gospel for the rest of the book. Verses 16 and 17 are like a little acorn that grows into a mighty oak tree, which is this book, this book of Romans. So everything else we're going to learn in Romans, you can come back and you'll find it in its minuscule core form right in these two verses. The rest of the book is the unpacking of these two verses. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones a minister in Britain in the 20th century, he wrote, in a sense, there are no two verses of greater importance in the whole of Scripture than verses 16 and 17. In a sense, these two verses are responsible for the Protestant Reformation. Now that's, that's something, to say that these two verses, in a sense, are responsible for the entire Protestant Reformation. I want you to notice the subject matter of verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what's the it referring to? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, the word gospel comes from the old English word, God spell. And what that means is the spell or the story of God. That's what the gospel is. It's the story of God, the spell of God. It's what God, it's the news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. And it has as its core the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's where the power to save comes from, what Christ accomplished for us. The word means good news or glad tidings. I hope Pedro is listening to this. <laughs> good news, glad tidings. Now, notice the context. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now he says three things about the gospel here. Verse 14, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, I am not ashamed to preach this gospel. I'm under obligation because everyone in this world has a desperate need for it, and they will perish in their sins without it. So I'm under obligation to get it to them. I'm eager because I love this gospel that has worked in my life, and I'm not ashamed of it because I know the powerful transforming effects it has when anyone believes it. So there we have our context. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul says he's not ashamed of it because this gospel brought untold suffering in his life. Yet he's not ashamed of it. It was because he preached this gospel that he was stoned in Lystra, that he was mocked in Athens, that he was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, that he was driven out of Thessalonica, and that there were continual threats on his life. This gospel brought a lot of trouble into his life, but he says, I'm not ashamed of it. And you know when he says, I'm not ashamed of it, what he's really saying, he's using a negative for emphasis. By saying, I'm not ashamed, he's saying, I boast in the gospel. I glory in this gospel. It's not just that I'm not ashamed of it, I love it and esteem it and prize it and glory in it and boast in it. That's what he tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now why... Did Paul love this gospel so much that he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm under obligation to preach it. I'm eager to preach it. And I'm not ashamed to preach it. Even though it's brought so much suffering into his life, why would he not be ashamed of it? There's two reasons in our text why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, because the gospel releases the power of God. Verse 17, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now let's look at the first one. Paul's not ashamed of this gospel because it releases the power of God. Now let's notice, first of all, what this text does not say. It doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for healing. 
or it is the power of God to drive out demons, or it is the power of God to make you rich, or it is the power of God so that you can speak in tongues. I'm not denying or putting any of those things down. I'm just saying the gospel is not about those things. The gospel is about something else. What's it about? Salvation. Salvation is what the gospel is about. Now let's talk about salvation for a minute. What do we mean when we talk about salvation? What does it mean when we talk about someone being saved? We're talking about someone being rescued. Someone who's in great danger, being brought out of that danger and brought to a place of safety. They're delivered, they're rescued out of danger into a safe place. That's really what is behind this word salvation. Think of firefighters who rush into a home and there's a little child in there who's trapped and can't get out of the house and the house is burning and it's going to collapse upon his head. And they rush in, they put a wet cloth over his mouth and nose and rush him out and bring him to a place of safety. That child has been saved. Or a little toddler who falls into a swimming pool and goes unconscious and everyone thinks that he's drowned, but they pull him up and start giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and he's revived. That little toddler was saved, in a sense. Or do you remember in 2010, the accident down in Chile where those miners, there's 33 miners who were trapped underground, under tons of stone and dirt, and there's all the exits were blocked. There's no way they could get out. But yet they found a way to drill through and to actually, like this little capsule, they brought all those people out of Chile to safety. They were saved. Now, those miners down there had absolutely nothing they could do to get out on their own. It was hopeless, humanly speaking, for them to escape. They needed someone from the outside to come to their aid. And when we talk about the gospel and salvation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who has come from the outside, God, because we were in a hopeless state. We couldn't do anything, humanly speaking, to get out of the condition we were in. We were doomed, okay? That's... Take that as literal as you possibly can. We were absolutely doomed from a human perspective, but God broke in from the outside just like we tunneled down to those miners and God rescued us. That's what Paul means when he talks about salvation. God's rescue operation. Now, why does salvation have to come from the outside? That's simple. Because we're incapable of saving ourselves. Through the fall, every single one of us, every person on this planet has been ruined. We are all depraved. We are all corrupt. We're born with this condition. We're born with a sinful nature. And because of that, we are under God's wrath, according to Ephesians 2.3. By nature, he says, we're children of wrath, just like everybody else. Born into this world and, and that condition. And it's because God's justice and God's holiness requires that he punish sin. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be God. God is just. You can't just say God is love and let's forget about the justice part. No, God is a comprehensive, total person with all of these attributes in perfection. His love and his justice. His grace and His holiness. They all work together in perfection. And so because God is just and we are sinners, 
we're doomed. And there's nothing you and I can do to escape. We can't, even if we tried to become perfect from now on, we couldn't do it. But even if we did, we have sins that we've already committed in our, in our past up till this time that we're going to have to give an account for. We're under condemnation because of sin. Not only that, but we're slaves of sin. And we can't change our nature. And we can't change our heart. A slave means we're under the dominion of sin. We're born that way. But the answer to this desperate problem that we all face is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's God's answer to our desperate problem, our sin problem. It's like we're all in burning houses or we're all trapped underground, but Christ himself came from heaven to earth and he has rescued us by his work on the cross and by his glorious resurrection. He has rescued us by virtue of that work. Now, to understand the word salvation, you have to understand that the Bible uses the term in three different senses. Sometimes the Bible talks about salvation in the past, sometimes in the present, and sometimes in the future. The past. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved. What tense is that? Past tense. It happened to us in the past. You have been saved. We're talking here about justification. I mean, God has declared you righteous because of Christ. That happened the moment you believed in Him. It's in the past. But in present tense as well. Like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Wait a minute. Being saved? I thought we were saved. Well, this text says we are being saved. That's the present tense. This is talking about sanctification. God's ongoing work to separate you more and more from sin unto himself, to make you holy. But then salvation sometimes has a future aspect to it. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Peter says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wait a minute. I thought we were saved. And I thought we were being saved. Well, we are, but we also will be. This salvation will be granted to us in its fullness in the final time, the last time. So salvation is past justification, present sanctification, future glorification. In justification, we are saved from sin's penalty. In sanctification, we're saved from sin's power. And in glorification, we're saved from sin's presence. Pres the presence of sin will be removed in heaven. So that's how the Bible describes, it's a very comprehensive term, but it's God's rescue plan to deliver us from sin's penalty, power, and even its presence. Now, in Romans 1.16, Paul not only talks about the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but I want you to focus on those words, the power of God. Meditate there for a little while. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. That means that the gospel is the exact opposite of self-salvation. You see why? 
If the gospel is the power of God, it's not your power. In fact, your power had nothing to do with your being rescued. It had everything to do with God's power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is completely opposed to salvation based on human power or human effort or human works. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is not do your best to fix your sinful problems. <laughs> the gospel is not you need to turn over a new leaf. That, that is, that, those things have nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is God's announcement, His news of what He has done to rescue sinners. And it's not about you, it's about Him. It's about His Son, Jesus Christ, and what Christ has accomplished. So the salvation of God is a result of God's mighty power. And through believing the gospel, we are completely delivered from sin. Now, what that tells me is that salvation has to succeed. Do you see why? It's based on God's power. How much power does God have? All power. If the gospel is God's power for salvation, that tells me it is certain and sure, it's effective, it is actually going to win. God is going to win with this salvation thing that He has devised because His power is going to carry it through to the end. God possesses all power. That's why God's call is irresistible. That's why God's justification is is effective and permanent. That's why nobody can overthrow. When God justifies you, nobody can overthrow that. When God calls you, nobody can take you away from His hand because God's power is behind this gospel. You see, salvation is not an iffy proposition. Right? The Old Covenant was iffy. If you do this, then God will do that. If you obey my covenant, then you will be my special people out of all the peoples on the earth. Exodus 19. The new covenant is not an if-then proposition. It's an I will and they shall covenant. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will write my law upon your heart. You shall be my people. I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will forgive your sins. That's the, the nature of the new covenant that we are under today. It's not an iffy kind of a thing. It's rock solid and guaranteed because God's purposes can never fail. Now that's what David came to understand. In 2 Samuel 23, at the end of David's life, uh, his words are recorded for us. Listen to what he says, 2 Samuel 23, 5. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? Now think about what David is saying. The Lord has made an everlasting covenant with me, it's not a temporal covenant. It's an everlasting one. And this covenant is ordered in all things and it is secured. In other words, it can't be broken. It's for all my salvation and all my desire. Now, folks, just put your own name in there because you are part of God's everlasting covenant, His new covenant, 
bought by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, secured by the work of Christ at the cross. And this is the kind of a gospel that you and I should exult in. A gospel that's not going to fail us. It's, it's not a gospel that if we falter or if we sin or if we transgress is going to somehow fail us. God's purposes will see us through to the very end. Now notice our text also, Romans 1.16, who this gospel is for. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, he mentions Jew and Greek. In the first century, that would mean everyone. You either have Jews or non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, this is a gospel for the Jew. It's also a gospel for the Gentiles, a gospel for the Greek. doesn't matter who you are. This gospel is available and offered to you this morning. Now, I don't know who here has been born again by the Spirit and who hasn't. If you haven't been born again by the Spirit, this is a gospel God is opening His hands and offering you. You must take it. You must receive it. But He's offering it to you, and it's available to you. And if you die without believing this gospel, you'll perish in your sins. And God will be just in condemning you because He did offer you this gospel. So this means that no person on the planet is excluded. Canadians are included. Britons are included. Chinese are included. Americans are included. Africans. Chileans. Right? It doesn't matter what race you are of. This gospel is made available to you and offered to you and those who preach it. You know, sometimes when I'm witnessing, someone will say, well, wait a minute. We're all God's children. In other words, I don't need what you're talking about because I'm already God's child, right? We're all God's children. Wrong. The Bible doesn't say we're all God's children. It says we're all God's creatures. He created us, but we're not all God's children. Galatians chapter 3 says that you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and not until then. Now, Paul says the same thing. He, he, he tells us, only those who believe will benefit from this gospel. It's glorious in and of itself, but you'll never benefit from it without faith. And he tells us that again in chapter 3, verse 22. He says there, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. And he tells us that again in chapter 10, and verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess your with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So faith is the human condition, you might say, we'll call it that, the human condition by which we receive the benefits of the gospel. You must believe. God isn't going to believe for you. He doesn't need to believe. He already believes. <laughs> you need to believe. Now, it is true that you will be enabled by the power of the Spirit to believe. Amen. Absolutely. And it is true that faith is a gift of grace. But you must believe. It is your responsibility to believe this gospel. Don't shirk the responsibility. If you're a child here today and you say, well, my mom and dad believe, that doesn't count for you. 
You must have your own relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to stop saying, well, I'm born in a Christian family. My mom and dad believe this. I guess I'm fine. No, you're not. Not until you come to faith in Jesus Christ for yourself. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, I know that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation, but I don't think repentance is. I don't think it's necessary for a person to repent in order to be saved. It doesn't say anything about repentance here in Romans 1.16, does it? No, it doesn't. It talks about believe. It talks about faith. But the problem with that way of thinking is that a person is trying to divorce faith from repentance, and you can't divorce them. You can't, because they're two sides of the very same thing. They're like Siamese twins. They're like two heads on the same body. And let me try to explain this. Faith means turning from something to Christ. So the turning to Christ, that's faith. But the turning from is repentance. Now, I can't turn to anything unless I turn away from something else. Do you see that? You can't believe unless you repent. And you can't repent unless you believe. The two go together like a hand in a glove. That's why Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. So if you want true saving faith, you, it, it will be a faith that includes repentance. And if you want evangelical repentance, it includes putting your trust in Jesus Christ. So even though every verse in the Bible doesn't include both of them, you can find verses that say, Repentance is necessary for salvation. You can find verses that say faith is necessary for salvation. 2 Peter 3.9 God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. repentance. What does that tell you? What happens if you don't repent? You perish. Jesus said in Luke 13.3 I tell you the truth. Unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Friends, you will perish if you don't repent. You will perish. You will go to hell if you don't repent. That's how important repentance is. It's just as important to faith because it cannot be separated from faith. A living faith includes repentance and a a real biblical repentance includes faith that saves. Okay. So let's sum all this up. The gospel announces what God has done to deliver sinners from the ruin of the fall. When we believe it, we are rescued from God's wrath by virtue of His power, and God cannot fail because He has all power. (laughs) This gospel is freely offered to all people. It's made available to all people who hear it. It's received by faith alone, and that true saving faith includes turning from sin and to Christ. It has nothing to do with the works of the law. It has everything to do with believing on what Christ has already accomplished for us when he died and rose again from the dead. Now, let's turn to verse 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it releases the power of God. But I'm also not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 17 says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, what does he mean? Well, first of all, let's think about what this text doesn't say. It doesn't say, for in the gospel, the love of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, that is if if Americans today were writing the Bible, they would write, 
For in it, the love of God is revealed because that's what popular American evangelical Christianity focused most, most upon. You just have to think about the songs that come out and almost everyone is talking about how God loves you. Um, and that's true. It's a glorious truth. But it's not what Paul focused on when he wanted to explain what the gospel is all about. Paul focused on the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. You see, God's love is not some fuzzy, warm sentimentality whereby he can just say, okay, well, I love you, so I'm just going to sweep your sins under the rug. We'll let bygones be bygones. Come on into the kingdom. No problem. God can't do that because he's righteous. And what are you? Unrighteous. How can God, who is absolutely righteous, be united to someone who is unrighteous? To the core. We, let's admit it. We're born that way. We're selfish to the core. That's part of the human nature we inherited from our forefather Adam. How's that going to happen? Well, in verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're unrighteous. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. That's the downside. In order for God to exercise His salvation in our life, He cannot just sweep things under the rug. If He could, there would be no reason for the gruesome, bloody death of the Son of God. There would be no reason for that at all. God would just say, come on in. I accept you. Uh, the Muslim faith basically believes that there's no need for an atonement. God, Allah is so great, they say, that he can just bestow pardons on whom he will. I would say that's not true. God, because of his very nature, because of his justice, has to have an atonement sufficient to wipe away the guilt that has been incurred. And only the Christian faith has an atoning sacrifice that can deal with sin adequately. The Jews have, well, they used to have animal sacrifices. That can't handle adequately an atonement for their sin and all of our righteous deeds will never be able to wipe away our sin there's only one way the sin can be removed and it's what christ accomplished not what you do it's what jesus did so our unrighteousness has to be atoned for it must be forgiven it must be covered and that's what the gospel is all about now let's talk about this phrase in verse 17 for in it in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's think about that phrase, the righteousness of God. What did Paul mean by it? What's he talking about? When Martin Luther, as a monk, thought on this verse, it drove him crazy. It made him mad. It caused him to hate God, actually, because he thought the verse meant that this is God's perfect righteousness that he has in himself and that if anybody doesn't measure up to God's righteousness, God would judge and condemn him. And so Luther kept reading the verse, and it was making him angrier and angrier. Let me just read to you what he says about it. Luther wrote, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans, but a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, stood in my way. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
For I hated that word righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. You see how you could understand verse 17 that way? But the problem with that is, Paul says here, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Tell me, how is this understanding of the righteousness of God good news? It's the worst news ever. If verse 17 means that God is absolutely righteous and he will punish all who are not righteous, that's not good news because I'm not righteous. I have sinned. How about you? Are you absolutely righteous? Verse 17, that means we're all condemned to hell. That's what Luther thought it meant. But that's not what it means. How do we know that? Well, number one, because it wouldn't make any sense for this to be good news if that's what it meant. Number two, because although the righteousness is God's in the first part of verse 17, it's man's in the second part of verse 17. Because he says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, if it's talking about the righteous man, it's no longer talking about this righteousness which is inherent in God alone. There's something else going on. So let's try to figure this out. What does he mean? I believe what Paul means in verse 17 is that this righteousness of God is not something he demands from the sinner. It's something he gives to the sinner. It's a gift. And that's what he's going to tell us when we get to chapter 3. He spends the first three chapters nailing everyone and saying, we're all under sin, we're all condemned, we're all... Uh, our mouths are shut before the law of God. But then he says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So what that means is that the righteousness of God in verse 17 is this perfect standing that God gives to the one who believes the gospel. And when Luther discovered that, he said, I felt like I had been reborn and taken into the the gates of paradise. It's, it's this verse that spearheaded the Protestant Reformation. This is the verse that God used to convict and then to save Martin Luther. And Luther was like the bull in the china closet that spearheaded the whole Reformation. You had other people come after him like Knox and Calvin and these other guys, but he was the first one. And he started writing pamphlet after pamphlet showing that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by penance. We're not saved by praying the rosary. We're not saved by going on our knees up the the gate or the the steps to the temple in Rome. No, we're saved as a gift that God gives us through the work of Jesus Christ. Praise God. See, God takes His own perfect righteousness and He puts that to your account. So when you go to your bank and you say to the bank teller, so what do I, what do I have in this account? He says, perfect righteousness. <laughs> perfect righteousness. Well, how, how much is it? 
I can't even count it. It's so big. I, I can never get to the bottom of it. It's, it's absolutely perfect, and there's so much of it, you'll never run short of it. A bank account filled with Christ's own virtue and merit and righteousness. See, when Jesus came down from heaven, he wasn't coming down for himself. He was coming down as a representative to work out a perfect life so that the virtue of what Christ accomplished on the earth, his righteous life, then is applied to the believing sinner. And all Jesus' good works are put to your account when you believe the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? That's We are justified because of Christ. This is how it works. God treats you as if you were Jesus because he treated Jesus as if he were you. There was a great exchange that took place. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 means. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God regards Christ as us so we can be regarded as Christ. And there we have the, the beauty of the gospel. This righteousness that is given to us, Luther called an alien righteousness. Do you remember those miners that we referred to? They needed someone to come from the outside to get them. We need a righteousness that comes from the outside and will clothe us. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that's exactly what God did. Chapter 3, verse 9, Oh, that I might be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, listen to this here, which comes from God on the basis of faith. God takes His own robe off and He puts it around you. And he says, you're my son. I see no flaw in you. I see no sin in you. All I see is the beauty of my own precious son. You are in Christ when you believe. And Christ covers you and clothes you so that God sees, sees you as being in his son. There's, he sees you as all glorious, beautiful. Of course, he knows that you're a sinner, but he doesn't regard you in that light anymore because now you have stepped out of Adam and now you're in Christ and he sees you in his beloved. Isn't that beautiful? God's gift to us. And this is the glory of the gospel. How can God credit his righteousness to us? We've talked about how Jesus Christ exchanges places with us. He was perfect. We're sinful. He took our place to die on the cross so we could take his place. Now, what did Jesus deserve? He deserved everlasting glory. What do we deserve? We deserve death and damnation. He takes death and damnation on the cross so that we get heaven. Do you see? He gets the cross. We get the glory. Now, back in Romans 1, it says in verse 17 that this righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, what did he mean by that? From, it's kind of an odd expression. From faith to faith. I believe what he means is that we enter salvation, we enter a state of salvation through faith. But we continue all of our life by the same principle. We never 
change gears and go into works. It's not like in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to works as though you sort of graduate from faith along the way and now I'm going to attain some super level in my Christian life through these works of the law. That's not how it works. This very same principle by which you were saved is the very same principle you will live the Christian life to the very end of your life. Until you take your last dying breath of faith, you will be living by faith. It's the only way that the Christian life can be lived. The holiest man who has ever lived could never approach God on the basis of his own works. Apart from Jesus Christ, there was nobody born of Adam who could approach God and be accepted by God because of their works. I don't care how holy they are. And there have been some very holy men of God down through the history of the church. None of them could approach God. They'd be consumed in God's holiness. Well, let's draw this down to some application. First of all, the first thing I want to tell you about this gospel is that it is the answer to the world's real problems. Real problems. See, I don't think the real problem is poverty or hunger or crime or disease or racism or poor education or war. Those are effects. Let's trace the effects back to the cause. The cause is sin. It's the fall. All of those things are the result of the fall. Before the fall, you didn't have poverty, hunger, crime, racism, poor education, war, disease. All those things came in. Death, include death there. They all came in as a result of sin in the world. So if you want to get down and get to the bottom of everything, let's go down to sin. And the gospel deals with sin. The gospel eradicates the sin problem in a person's life. When they believe. Now, by eradicate, I don't mean that you never have a problem with sin. We do. I don't mean that. But I mean that you are justified now because of Christ. And he doesn't look on you in your sin any longer. So only the gospel can solve the real problem. Now, I'll speak for a few minutes to those who are not yet saved. So I don't know who you are. Maybe everybody is, but probably not. Probably not in a room like this. If that's you, you need to believe this gospel. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not good enough, like I've said, that your parents do or that your friend does, the one who brought you. You're going to stand alone before God one day on the day of judgment and he's going to ask you some questions. He's going to review your life and he's going to say, what have you done with my son? If the gospel was presented to you, and friends, it was presented to you today. You've heard it. You are now responsible for what you do with it. The worst thing you could possibly do is to leave today and do nothing. And just to go on in your unbelief. To go on in your sin and refuse to repent and turn to Jesus. If... You are to die without believing this gospel. You of all men on the earth are most to be pitied. So I would call you today to come to Jesus Christ. Throw yourself on his mercy. Be willing to turn away from the sins that have held you. God can free you from those sins. God can actually transform your life. He can make you an absolutely new person. But you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most of you here 
are Christians? What, what does this gospel have to tell you? You say, well, Brian, why are you preaching about the gospel to a room full of Christians? Because we all need it. <laughs> you don't just need it on the first day you get saved. You need it for your whole life. <laughs> and folks, we never graduate. It's not like we, you know, get into this super spiritual advanced Christian course and we learn these new things and now I don't need this anymore, this gospel, because I've got all this super deep spiritual teaching. You're never going to get away from this over here. The gospel is not the A, B, and C of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. It's everything in between. It's not just the door to the house. It's the whole house with the walls and the roof and the foundation and everything else. The gospel is that which drives the Christian life. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells the Colossians, let me read, read this, it's Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, just as you receive Jesus Christ to become a Christian, so live the Christian life. Walk in Christ. Well, how did you receive Him? By faith. How do you live out this Christian life? By faith. We continue to repent and we continue to believe. That's like the, the two hands by which we climb the ladder. Repentance and faith. So we don't ever graduate to some other principle. This is how we live. By faith in Jesus Christ and His gospel. Now, it's interesting to me that when Paul wants to teach the Christians in all these different churches, and he wants to motivate them, he always goes back to the gospel. Have you ever thought about that or noticed that? For example, he wants to motivate husbands and wives. He wants to motivate the husbands to love their wives. And he wants to motivate the wives to submit to their husbands. Well, how does he do it? Yes, yes. Ephesians 5. This is what he says to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He goes back to what Christ accomplished in order to motivate us to live as godly husbands, guys. Look at Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself for your sin and redeemed you. Let's take another example. How does Paul motivate believers to stop judging one another in the church? Well, go to Romans 15. And all of chapter 14 and chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, deal with believers judging one another on gray areas of the Christian life what they eat, what they drink, what day they observe. He says, don't do that, don't judge each other. And he says in verse 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Interesting, he always goes back to Christ's work for us and builds our motivation on how we should live off of that, right? The gospel. Or if Paul wants to motivate believers to love one another, how does he do it? Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love 
Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He points to the cross again to say, to say this is why you should love one another, because Christ loved you. You see? Or I'll give you one more. If Paul wants to motivate the believers in Corinth to generous giving, how's he going to do it? Well, let's go look. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Look at Christ. If you, if you need motivation to be a generous giver, look at Christ. He had the riches of heaven. He gave them up. He came down to the earth. He became poor. And he gave all on the cross so that you and I might become rich in him. So if, if you need motivation to live a holy life as a husband, look at the gospel. If you're judging your brother, look at Christ. He accepted you. If you need motivation to love the brothers, look at what Christ did for you. He loved you. It, whenever Paul wants to motivate towards holiness, he doesn't have the super advanced spiritual teaching that nobody knows except for him, and he's got to initiate you. It's the same gospel way in which you were saved initially. Just keep going back to the same one. That's what we need as believers. It, it's, it's foolish when we say, well, everybody here has heard the gospel, so I, I don't think we need that anymore. Let's not talk about that. Let's go deeper. Folks, what you need, you need to build your life on this gospel and you need to learn to apply it to every area of your life. So that if you have a problem in your life, a sin problem, go to the gospel and say, how does the gospel relate to or impinge upon that situation in my life? What does it have to say about this situation? How can it motivate me? You see, that's what Paul does. And that's what's going to help us to live out this gospel. We have a glorious gospel. I hope you've seen something of that glory this morning. It is glorious. And so I would encourage you to preach it to yourself. If you're just kind of feeling down or not close to God or, or whatever, start rehearsing the gospel back to yourself. Driving down the road, Lord, I thank you that Christ died for my sins according to the scripture. Thank you for sending your beloved son into the world. Thank you that I am righteous in your sight because of his righteousness which covers me through faith. Just start telling you what you know to be true and you'll find yourself being lifted up in faith and able to walk out the Christian life God's called you to. You might sing the gospel. Preach the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. And as we get together, brothers and sisters, as the women get together, and as the men get together, this should be the theme that's on our hearts. This is how we help each other. We, we show how the gospel relates to every aspect of the Christian life. Amen? Let's sing that song I taught you earlier today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to all who will believe. Oh, I am not ashamed. Lord, we pray we would never be ashamed of this truth. It's the most glorious truth. We have no hope of ever standing before you apart from it. We thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by which we stand and by which we will ever stand in your presence. 
May we never put our foot upon every, any other foundation other than this one. Lord, don't allow us to do that. Strike us dead first before we put our confidence in anything other than what Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.